Chapter 66 of History of the Norwegian People, Volume 1 by Knut Gershet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Haakon's Coronation, Colonial Affairs. King Haakon had long desired to be crowned, but because of his illegitimate birth, he had to obtain the Pope's dispensation, and so long as Skule Jarl lived, his efforts in this direction were frustrated. After Skule's death, he renewed the negotiations regarding the coronation, and Pope Innocent IV, who ascended the throne of the popes in 1243, encouraged him by a most friendly attitude. Innocent had maintained with more than usual vigor the supremacy of the pope, and as a result he soon quarreled with Emperor Frederick II. In his struggle with this powerful monarch, he felt the necessity of keeping on friendly terms with other princes. To gain Hawkins' goodwill, he sent Cardinal William of Sabina as a legate to Norway to crown him. He also wrote a letter by which he removed all blemish with regard to King Hawkins' birth, so that it should neither mar his royal dignity nor the right of his legitimate sons to inherit the crown. When the cardinal arrived in Norway, he tried to persuade Hawkins to acknowledge the overlordship of the pope, but when the king refused, he did not urge the point. The coronation took place in Bergen with great ceremony, July 29, 1247. The ceremonies in connection with the coronation are vividly described by the author of the Hawken Hawkinson saga. The Olav Mass Eve was a Sunday. On the Olav's day, Mass was sung in the whole city, whereupon the people were summoned to the Christ Church by the blowing of trumpets. Eighty herdmaned in military attire cleared the way to the church. The royal procession was arranged thus. First came the herdmaid, who were to clear the way, two abreast. Then the standard-bearers with standards. The skutelsfeiner, and the sisselmaid in fine attire, and the lendermaid with beautiful swords. Thereupon came four lendermaid carrying aloft a table on which were placed the carnation robes and all the royal insignia. After them came Sigurd, the king's son, and Munon Bishopson, carrying two silver scepters one ornamented with a golden cross, and the other with a snake of gold. Then came the younger King Hawken with a crown, and Jarl Knut carrying the coronation sword. Archbishop Sigurd and two bishops escorted King Hawken. At the entrance to the royal residence, the priests in procession met the king and chanted the responsory, Eke mito angelum meum, after which they proceeded to the church. The cardinal, with his clerks and two bishops, stood by the church door, where they sang a song, whereupon they followed the king to the altar. Mass was then sung, and the coronation was carried out in the usual manner. After the mass, the archbishop and the bishops followed the king to his residence in the same order as before, singing hymns in praise of God. The king took off the coronation robes and put on the royal robes and insignia. The crown he wore the whole day. He then proceeded to the hall, where the royal banquet was prepared, together with all those who were to take part in it. The walls of the hall were hung with colored cloth, and cushions were placed there covered with pell and golden woven silk. The seats were so arranged that the king sat by the north wall between the inner pillars. At his right sat the cardinal, the archbishop, the bishop of Bergen, and other bishops. On the right side, toward the sea, sat the abbots, the priors, the provosts, and other learned men. In the middle of the hall, over against the high seat, was a second high seat where the younger King Hawkins sat, together with Jarl Knut and Sigurd, the king's son, and many lendermen sat on either side of them. 
On the king's left sat the queen, and next to her sat her mother, Ragnhild, then Christina and Cecilia, the king's daughters, Abbess Rangrid, the abbesses, and other ladies. Along the southern wall sat the king's herd. Two rows of tables extended along the middle of the hall from one end to the other. Outside of these sat the guests, also by two rows of tables. In all, there were thirteen rows of tables along the hall. The multitude, who did not find room inside, stayed in tents around the hall. Cardinal William of Sabina spoke at the royal banquet of the impressions which he had received on his visit to Norway. He said, God be praised that I have now fulfilled the errand which was given in my charge by my lord the Pope. Your king is now crowned, and honored more highly than any king in Norway before. God be praised also that I did not turn back on the way, as I was urged to do so. I was told that I would find few people here, and if I found any, they would resemble animals in their conduct more than human beings. Now I see here a great assembly of the people of this country, and it appears to me that they show good manners. I see here so many men from foreign lands and such a multitude of ships that I have never seen a great number in any harbor, and I believe that most of these ships have been laden with good things for this country. They scared me by saying that I would get little bread or other food, and what I would get would be of poor quality, but it seems to me that there is such an abundance of good things that both houses and ships are full. I was told that I would get nothing to drink here but water and diluted milk, but I see an abundance of all good things. God help our king, the queen, the bishops, the learned men, and the whole people. He grant that my errand to this land may so terminate that it may be an honor to you, and a joy for us all, both in this life and in the life to come. The Council of Magnets which had gathered in Bergen for the coronation found opportunity also to discuss many features of state and church polity, and by the aid of the cardinal many important reforms were carried through. The laws regarding the strict observance of Sunday and church holidays were modified. The cardinal found that the weather and the general environment had to be taken into due consideration, and that the people ought to be allowed to fish and to harvest their grain when there was an opportunity, except on the principal holidays. Trial by ordeal, Jarnberg, was abolished, as the cardinal said that it was not proper for Christians to summon God as witness in human affairs. It is very probable that this reform was initiated by the king, who must have been as anxious as the cardinals to see this mode of trial abolished. His own mother, Inga of Vartag, had been forced to submit to ordeal to prove his royal descent, and many bold pretenders had by means of it made their claim to the throne. Those who rebelled against the king should be punished by excommunication. The queen was granted the right of Advausen over three royal chapels which the king had built and also over missionary churches built on the border of the kingdom for the conversion of the heathens. It was an important concession, since the priests of these churches would stand under direct supervision of the king. The cardinal also adjusted many minor complaints of the people and the lower clergy against the bishops, and he finally issued a proclamation regarding the relation of church and state in Norway, or what he considered to be their relation. He said that he found the church in full and peaceful possession of separate jurisdiction in all ecclesiastical affairs, whosoever were the parties in the case, and over the clergy in all cases whatsoever. He also found that the church had full right of advocacy except in case of the royal chapels above mentioned, and finally that the election of bishops and prelates was made by the clergy according to the right granted them by the canon law, without interference of secular authority. 
These rights were universally claimed by the Catholic Church at that time, but it is by no means clear that the Church of Norway possessed them in the degree here stated by the cardinal. King Svera, and likewise his successors, maintained the right of the king to sanction the choice of bishops. The bishop-elect had to be presented to the king, who in this way exercised great influence on the election. As to the right of Andvason, there was much dispute, and the Old Norse church laws recognized no ecclesiastical courts. Kaiser thinks that the proclamation was a secret document placed by the cardinal in the hands of the bishops, to be used at some future moment. After a generation or two, it could be appealed to as an authority. To further please King Haakon, the cardinal sent a letter to Iceland, requesting the Icelanders to acknowledge the overlordship of the king of Norway. He did this, also, because the Roman church did not recognize a republic as a legitimate government. Haakon immediately sent a governor, or Sisselmand, to Iceland to assert the king's authority over the island. The Norse colonial empire, which had been founded in the Viking Age, was still intact. The colonies in Ireland and Normandy, as well as the settlements along the coast of Scotland, Wales, and northern England, were no longer Norse communities. But Man and the Hebrides, the Orkneys, the Faroe Islands, and the Shetland Islands were still Norse colonies. And Greenland and Iceland, though politically independent, were tied to the mother country as closely as ever before. Norway's commerce and her power at sea depended in a large measure on her colonial possessions, through which she still maintained an open highway of trade and communication with the countries of the West. The revenues directly obtained were often in arrears when measured with the cost of fitting out military expeditions to keep the chieftains in these island possessions in due submission, but the kings of Norway guarded the colonies, not only because they were felt to be in a sense a part of Norway, but because they never lost sight of their real importance. The protracted civil wars had diverted the attention from affairs in the colonies, and tended to weaken the ties which bound them to the kingdom. But though their allegiance was severed at times, it was re-established quickly and without difficulty. A greater danger to Norse overlordship was the close proximity of many of these island groups to England and Scotland. That future development would lead to an absorption of these islands by the kingdoms to which they geographically belonged could not fail to be apprehended by foresighted statesmen. In 1158, the Kingdom of Man and the Hebrides was divided between King Gudrud and Sumerlida's son, Dugald. Ragnvald, Reginald, Gudrudson, who succeeded his father in 1187, threw off all allegiance to Norway, but the expedition to the Orkneys and Hebrides in 1209-1210 forced Ragnvald and his son Gudrud to repair to Norway and offer their submission to King Ingeborgson. Ragnvald took his oath of allegiance lightly. In 1219, he swore fealty to King Henry III of England, and in obedience to a request made by the papal legate, Pandulf, he issued a document dated September 1, 1219, by which he transferred the kingdom of man to the Church of Rome, and received it back as a fief from the Pope, promising to pay a yearly tribute of twelve marks sterling. The Pope formally accepted the gift May 23, 1223, and placed Ragnvald in his kingdom under the protection of St. Peter. A war now broke out between Ragnvald and his brother Olaf Svarte, whom he had imprisoned and ill-treated. Olaf, who had regained his liberty, attacked Ragnvald with a fleet of thirty-two ships, and forced him to divide his kingdom with him. Ragnvald sought aid in Scotland, and Earl Allen of Galloway, the most powerful of the Scotch magnates, 
acting as it appears under the instructions of the energetic King Alexander II, came to his support. In the bloody conflict which ensued, Rottenwald lost his life, and Gudrid, who had been maimed and blinded by Olaf, fled to Norway. But Owain made great preparations to attack Olaf, and even threatened to attack Norway, saying that it was no more difficult to go from Scotland to Norway than from Norway to Scotland, there being no less facility of finding ports or shelter for a fleet there than in the firths of Scotland. It was clearly the plan of King Alexander II to seize the islands, and Olaf, who was unable to cope with so powerful an enemy, hastened to Norway to seek aid. When news was brought by fugitives of the situation in Man and the Hebrides, King Haakon took the matter in hand. Olaf's most trusted lieutenant, Paul Balkesson, had sought the support of Skule Jarl, and the king could not trust one party much more than the other. He therefore divided Roggenwald's possessions between Olaf and Gudrud. Over the portion which had belonged to Sumerlida's son Dugald, he placed Uspak, Sumerlida's grandson, who was a veteran Birkebein chieftain in the king's service. He bestowed on him the title of king and gave him his own name, Haakon. When Olaf arrived in Norway, a fleet of thirteen ships commanded by Uspak Haakon was ready to sail to the colonies. Both Olaf and Gudrud returned with the fleet, which in the Orkneys received reinforcements till it finally numbered eighty ships. They sailed past Cantyre to Butte, where the Scots had strongly garrisoned Rothesay Castle. The castle was taken, but the Norsemen lost 360 men. Uspak Haakon was wounded and died shortly afterward. Olaf, who succeeded him as commander of the fleet, sailed to Man and took possession of that island. The division of the islands between Olaf and Gudrud was now consummated, and after Torquil MacDermot had been expelled from the island of Lewis, Ljodhus, the fleet returned to the Orkneys. Hostilities immediately broke out between the two kings and Man and the Hebrides. Gudrud was slain, and Olaf seized the whole kingdom. But when the fleet returned to Norway, 1231, King Haakon thanked his men for what they had achieved. Norse sovereignty over these colonies had been maintained, and Allen of Galloway had not again attacked Man or the Hebrides. In the Orkneys there were also feuds between rival chieftains and hostile factions. Jon Jarl was killed, and his successor Magnus held Caithness as a fief from the king of Scotland. The Orkney Jarls became more and more closely connected with Scotland and Scotch interests, and Caithness became the most important part of their possessions. The inhabitants, both in this province and in the Orkneys, were beginning to lose their Norse nationality. The number of Scotch settlers increased, and Scotch language and customs were gaining ground, an indication that Norse influence in these colonies was waning. End of chapter 66